We are back in Amos. Today is part seven of our journey through this ancient text. Part seven is where we're going to pick up today in chapter six, verse one. But before we do, before we begin part seven today, I thought, especially since we've had a one month hiatus and break, that it might be beneficial to us to, to, to recall some of the background information that really sets the stage for Amos here. Amos is, it's about the year 760 BC when he comes on the scene. But there are some significant events that took place prior to 760, which ultimately led up to him coming with this message from God. And so if we rewind 100 plus years from 760 to 860, really to about 883, early 9th century, because that, that setting looks very different than the one that Amos is, is in right now. So 883 BC approximately, the Assyrians begin conducting military operations outside their borders. This does not go over very well for the other nations. Some of you, you've had neighbors like this. If your tree branch so much as comes over maybe an inch into their yard, they freak out, okay? So, so you can imagine people aren't all that different even in the ninth century BC. So, so the Assyrians are conducting military operations outside their jurisdiction, outside their borders in order to seize control of strategic trade routes. Doesn't go over very well. The other nations, they don't like it. So they form a coalition. They form an anti-Assyrian coalition to oppose this type of Assyrian aggression. And there's three main players in this coalition. Erhulini, Hadadzer, and Ahab. Erhulini, Hadadzer, and Ahab. These are the three big players in this coalition. Now, Ahab may sound familiar. He's the king of Israel. The other guys, maybe not so much. Erhulini is king of Hamath, which Hamath actually gets mentioned today in our text, and Hadadzer, he's the king of Damascus, and Damascus may ring a bell, Paul on the road to? Okay, yes, Damascus. And, and so you realize those are cities, and I said, well, there are nations involved here. See, Hamath and Damascus, they are what you would call, at this time in the ninth century, part of the Aramean kingdom. The Arameans were a loose conglomeration of city-states in which the cities had... Lots of autonomy. They had their own kings. So Hamath is a city. Damascus is a city. They're on the same side, kind of. They're, they're part of the Arameans, but yet they, they're also very autonomous with their own rulers. And so they're together. Hadadzer of Damascus, he's definitely the, the big figurehead of this anti-Assyrian coalition to oppose the Assyrian aggression. And they engage in a series of battles. Four, uh, to be uh, clear, four different battles against the Assyrians. And after the fourth battle, sometime around 845 BC approximately, Hadadzer, the king of Damascus, dies. Not sure how he dies, before, during, after, he dies. And he's replaced by... The new king of Damascus, his name is Hazael. He's mentioned, uh, I believe, in chapter 1 of the story. But Hazael becomes king. And for some unknown reason, we're not really sure, that coalition dissolves once Hazael becomes king of Damascus. The coalition dissolves, and then Hazael decides 
to turn his attention to Israel and attack them. In the process, the king of Israel, Jehoram, is wounded. And this is documented in 2 Kings chapter 8. He's, he's wounded. So literally, we're on the same side, we're battling the Assyrians, and then the coalition's over, and our allies are fighting us. Oh, by the way, the Assyrians are still out there, still a threat, and now our king is wounded. Jehoram's injured. The army's left in charge of a man named Jehu. And Jehu is in a very difficult position. Think about the situation that he's in. The Assyrian threat is still there. Your former allies have now turned against you. Your king is wounded. Not a lot of options. Not looking very good right now. So Jehu, under the instructions of the Lord's prophet, under the instructions of the Lord's prophet and with Shalmaneser, the Assyrian king's blessing, decides to seize the throne for himself. He kills Jehoram and Ahaziah, the king of Judah, documented in 2 Kings chapter 9 through 10, and seizes the throne for himself. And from this point forward throughout the entire Jehu dynasty, which would be another five kings, Israel would remain very pro-Assyrian. Now, Jehu obviously is, to some degree, hoping that in doing this and now align himself with the Assyrians that they'll come through because the threat from Hazael, the king of Damascus, is still real. Well, the Assyrians do come through, unfortunately, not at the time that Israel needed them to come through. Assyria wages two different and two separate military campaigns, one from 841 to 840 and a second one from 837 838 to 837. Both campaigns that the Assyrians waged against Damascus and Hazael are unsuccessful. The Assyrians are beat back both times. And after the second failed campaign, Assyria is going to peace out. They're calling time out for another 30 plus years. With Assyria out of the picture, the king of Damascus turns his attention unchecked, unopposed to Israel. Israel doesn't have those type of resources to stop the king of Damascus and the Aramean threat. And for the next 30 plus years, Israel will live under the regime headed by the king of Damascus. They're going to live under this, under their thumb, less than ideal, yearning one day that perhaps they'd have freedom. 30 plus years go by. 2 Kings chapter 13 tells us that Jehoaz prays sometime around 802 BC. It's been over three decades since the last failed Assyrian campaign. It's been over three decades that they've been living under the thumb of the Arameans and the king of Damascus. But in 2 Kings 13, Jehoaz prays and God answers that prayer for deliverance, and he uses as a means to his grace the Assyrians. Assyria would return. Assyria would be Israel's savior. In 802 BC, Adad Narari III crushes Bin Hadad II, Hazael's son, the new king of Damascus, crushes Bin Hadad II, 
devastates Damascus, places them under a heavy tax. And freedom takes place. They're no longer under their thumb. The king of Damascus, Ben Ben Hadad II, he he doesn't have the resources to hold the the towns and the territories that he's taken to maintain his his grip on on Israel. They've got to worry about paying the Assyrians now. A a heavy taxation and and tribute burden. And so 802 B.C., when Adad Narari III crushed Ben Hadad II, the king of Damascus, it ushered in a golden age, this time of peace and economic prosperity. And yet, I think about circumstances that we've just captured. We've flown through the entire ninth century just now in about ten minutes. And I think about the position that Israel's in. You know, when we have our backs against the wall and we really are in very difficult positions, we really need God. We really depend upon God. Maybe some of you guys have been there, right? You're, you're in a valley and you just, you can't get out of this like constant storm after storm and it's just like, God, I need you. I need you so much. Please help. And you're praying and you and God are so close. It's interesting. Those times, those hardest times somehow, some way bring us into oftentimes such sweet fellowship with the Lord. But the temptation that inevitably happens afterwards is once that situation's passed, once God has answered our prayer, once God has got us out of that jam, the temptation is we don't need him quite so much. We don't rely upon him quite so much. We don't depend upon him quite so much. That temptation is just as real today and felt today as it was here. God answers Jehoaz's prayer in 2 Kings 13 using the Assyrians. And 802 BC ushers in this golden age, this time of peace and prosperity for the next 40 years. And yet, Israel, Israel's need for God has lessened. Israel's dependence upon God has lessened. It's more or less, hey God, yeah, um, you just sit over there and I'll let you know, like, if I need anything. Just, yeah, just kind of stay out of my way if, if, if you wouldn't mind. That's Israel. And God calls this guy, Amos, to bring a series of very unpopular messages. Everyone loves the messages on sex and dating. Like half of you just like lifted up your heads when I said those words. Um, like everyone likes those really popular messages. Amos brings a series of very unpopular messages. Messages which basically say, hey, you guys suck. Get your crap together and repent. Okay? Paraphrase. Joe paraphrase. But that's what he's saying. Like, like stop rebelling. And, of course, people don't like being told that they're not doing what they should be doing. And that's, you know, Amos' audience here. Um, and that's the message that this guy, he's not, Amos is a really cool guy. He's from the, from the city of Tekoa, about 10 miles outside Jerusalem. He's a breeder of sheep. This is a small businessman that God decides to use to bring a message to his people. And this is what he has to say in chapter 6, verse 1. 
where we pick up in our story today. Part 7 begins now. Verse 1, chapter 6, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. To whom the house of Israel comes. Woe to them. Woe to them. When I picture verse 1 in my mind, I just see it. And you have to understand that Samaria's topography was such that it was almost this natural mountain fortress. Okay? Excellent place for defense in regards to militaristic uh, characteristics. I just imagine verse 1, like, they're all, like all these leading citizens, they're, they're, they're just sitting around, chilling, smoking their cigars, having plates of food brought to them, food and drink, people are fanning them, and they've got no care, not a worry or concern at all. That's the picture, maybe minus the cigars, I don't know, that Amos paints for us here in verse 1. That's the picture, right? We see Israel's leaders, we see Jerusalem's leaders, very complacent. They're at ease. They shouldn't be at ease. They're secure. They feel secure. They shouldn't feel secure. They no doubt, as we'll see in a few verses, had a rather inflated opinion of themselves, a rather inflated of their spiritual preeminence. I've been saying this throughout Amos, right? They thought everything with them and God was just perfect, and everything with them and God was not so perfect. My relationship with God is awesome. Are you sure? Because that's what these people thought. That's what these people thought. They thought everything was great, and so they didn't have a care in the world. They lived perfectly at ease within this mountain fortress at at Samaria. Um, These notable men, the first of the nations, this designated, these leaders designated themselves as the really the number one nation. Right? This might be considered my 4th of July message, so I'm sure it'll have very patriotic overtones. And those of you guys who know, I'm, I'm an army chaplain. Uh, this, I guess this will just count for that. So, so, like, I picture this, right? They, they consider themselves the first of the nations, right? The number one nation. Because after all, we're America. We're the best of the best, the cream of the crop. Everybody else is last. Not even second, they're just last. Because we're it. The best trained, best equipped, best technology, we're just it. We're America. We got God on our side. I saw a t-shirt, you know, and it said, God, guns, country music, and beer. I'm sure it's in no particular order, but right? God, guns, country music, and beer, right? America. Yeah, we're awesome. We're number one. It's a good thing none of us are ever like them in verse one, right? The notable men of the first of the nations. We are the first of the nations, they said. We're Israel. We are the best. We're up here in our mountain fortress, totally at ease, totally not worried, totally not concerned. Everything with us and God 
totally okay. Hmm. It's interesting. It's the, the problem we begin to see here is who are they depending upon? They're totally at ease. They're not worried. They're not concerned. They're in their mountain fortress. They think everything with them and God is okay. And I can't help but ask the question is, who, who do we depend upon? It's so easy, right? When you need him, you depend upon him. And then once he gets you out of that jam, it's so, so tempting to just rely upon your own self. Your own resourcefulness, your own human ingenuity. After all, that's what we're taught. You fall down, you pick yourself up by the bootstraps, and you drive on, right? <laughs> but that type of attitude doesn't glorify God. That type of, God, we got it from here. You sit over there. That's Israel. So he says in verse 2, pass over to Kalna, it's a city, and see, just, just go look. And, and from there to Hamath. Remember Hamath, or Hulini was the leader back 130 years earlier of Hamath. The, the, Hamath the Great. Then go down to, to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? He, he calls on them to self-evaluate. You guys are totally at ease. You'd feel totally secure. I'm just calling you guys to self-evaluate things. I don't think he literally expected them to go make visits, site visits at these cities as much as, okay, you know these cities, you're familiar with these cities, right? If I said, um, like New York, LA, like you're familiar with them enough, okay? So they're familiar with these, these cities. Self-evaluate. Self-evaluate. Compare yourselves to these other nearby city-states. Compare yourselves to them. Kalna and Hamath were Syrian city-states under Israel's influence. Gath was a Philistine city-state under Judah's control. This is a rhetorical question. When he says, are you better than these kingdoms? The expected answer is, no. And we're not better. Forty years earlier, the tables were turned. Forty years earlier, I mean, I took you through the entire history of the ninth century as related to Israel and the story. Are you better than them? The answer is no. See, the point of him asking, uh, using these rhetorical devices here, was to show the equality between the city-states and Israel-Judah. He wants Israel and Judah to see that they're not bigger, they're not better than them. In fact, 40 years earlier, it was completely flipped. The circumstances had completely changed. He wants them to see that. He doesn't want them to, to, to be complacent, because they are complacent. They feel secure. They're not worried. And, and if at this point, that, that word that starts with a P and ends with a ride is, is coming in to your thought, then you're probably thinking the right way. Because that becomes very clear today what the issue is. These people are very proud and they're very arrogant. And so he says this in verse 3, 
Oh, you who put, oh, you who put away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. So you literally, you're taking the day of disaster and you're like throwing it like a football, like you're just throwing it away, right? You, you put far away the day of disaster and then you, you grab the seat of violence. Like if this was a chair here, am I allowed to sit here on this? That's okay. Okay. So like, this is what they're doing. They're just sitting there on the seat of violence like this. They, they put away the day of disaster. They're thinking, no, no, we're not sitting on the, on the seat of violence. We're sitting in our fortresses. We're totally at ease. We're totally secure. Amos is like, that's not true. That's not how things are. That, that's not reality. The way, the, your thinking right now is not rooted in reality. How do you know? Because God has given him this message. That's how he knows. That's how he knows. What happened to their neighbors could happen to them. Remember, 40 years earlier, very, very flipped circumstances. 40 years earlier, they thought such a day of disaster that they've essentially hurled down the field. They thought and just dismissed that. They thought that such a day of disaster would only be reserved for their enemies. But what they failed to see, as one commentator notes, is that they might actually be God's enemy. Might actually be God's enemy. A lot of applications running through my head, right? They've, they've pushed away the day of disaster and in the process pulled up the seat of violence for themselves. And, and they haven't even contemplated that they very well might be God's enemy, right? Because a day of disaster would never come, right? The day of disaster, man, that comes from those Muslim extremist terrorists. <laughs> yeah, they got to watch out. Me and God, we're good, but man, watch out. Those Muslim terrorist extremists, they're the ones they need to worry about, right? Or Israel, they'd say, well, our enemies, they're the ones that need to worry about being God's enemy. We're not God's enemy. <laughs> they are. And that's not to somehow say that what I said, that the invert isn't true. In fact, such a day of disaster awaits all. Muslim, even Christian, so-called Christian, it awaits everyone who, for them, Jesus Christ is not their Lord and Savior. Just get that out of the way in case someone like wants to pigeonhole my sermon and pick at it. Okay, just to be clear. You don't know Jesus, Lord and Savior. Disaster is going to await you. Not, you know facts about Jesus. You know Sunday school answers. No, like, if He is not truly Lord and Savior of your life, disaster awaits you. Okay? So we're clear on that. But man, that's, that's these people in verse 3. They, they think disaster is reserved for God's enemies. And yet, Amos is saying, you've essentially pulled up this chair. We'll call it violence. And you're much closer to disaster than you even realize. Israel. Verse 4. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. Verse 4 is going to segue and it's going to recap much of the story that some of you are already very familiar with. There is a big discrepancy between the social classes in this story, in the book of Amos, where the wealthy are very wealthy, the poor are very poor. Once again, just for clarification, not a sin to be poor, not a sin to be wealthy. But the problem, as we've seen through the first six parts of this series, is not that the wealthy are somehow sinning because they're wealthy. The problem is, is... One, 
how they've obtained their wealth. They have done it by very dishonest means. Not only that, as we've seen, they've actually stepped on the backs of the poor. They've dealt the poor great injustice, especially in their legal proceedings. A lot of, a lot of legal things have been twisted to the disadvantage of the poor people so that the wealthier people could take advantage of it. And as we've also seen is they have had plenty of opportunities to help the poor and they haven't. Plenty of opportunities to help the poor. To help people who need help, but they haven't. But they haven't. And so that's what Amos shows us here. More of this type of discrepancy. Verse 4, woe to those who lie on beds of ivory. It's interesting. The ordinary citizen would be fortunate if they actually were able to buy a bed. Much less one that had ivory and was all decked out really cool like this. And then he says, they eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. This was alarming. When I found this out, the ordinary citizen in Israel at this time would probably only eat meat three times a year at the annual festivals. Now, some of you, like, if you can't get your Chick-fil-A fixing, like, during the week, like, you're like, it's going to be a bad, bad week. This is the discrepancy. That's the picture that he paints here. These, these people... The classes are, are very separated. And instead of helping them, people who need help, they don't. They don't. They don't. And so, verse 5, he goes on to continue to paint this picture of these leading citizens. They sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and like David, invent for themselves instruments of music. They, the leading citizens of Israel, had a very luxurious, leisurely lifestyle where they could just afford lounging around all day long, eating, drinking, making up songs. Imagining, as one commentator says, and I quote, imagining themselves to be like little Davids. This is them. These are the people who mistreat their own citizens, who take advantage of them, who corrupt justice. These are them. These are them. They don't think of themselves as God's enemies. Amos does. They don't. Verse 6 who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. They're not grieved over the ruin of Israel. What's going on? Overindulgence. I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on gluttony, but this is the picture he's painting Another aspect of these leading citizens, gluttony, overindulging themselves on food and drink, taking absolutely no opportunity to help those who who need help, thinking everything's okay, feeling totally safe, feeling totally secure, feeling totally at ease, and they're not ruined over the, they're not grieved, excuse me, over the, the ruin of Joseph, or the ruin of Israel. So the picture that he paints here, especially the phrase, the ruin of of Joseph, is this. 
Israel? Israel is on the brink of total collapse. They're on the brink of total collapse. It's a very different picture than the one in verse 1 where they're in their mountain fortress. Amos lets them know you're on the brink of total collapse because of your sin. God's judgment is just a moment away and yet they're blinded by the reality and they think that everything's totally good. As one commentator notes, life, so they thought, couldn't be better. I think verse 1 paints that picture. Life, so they thought, could not be better. According to Amos, it could not have been worse. It couldn't have been worse. Man, I'll tell you what. I think the devil oftentimes comes and, and we're deceived and he lies to us. I talk to people. Man, I've talk, I can think of two people right now in the last month I've had conversations with. It's pretty abundantly clear they're not doing well. Okay? Like, um, not doing well at all. And I'm like, how, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Really? You're doing great? Like, because your wife told me that you want a divorce and you don't want to be married anymore. You're telling me you're doing great. I, I, I don't understand that, right? Or, you know, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing, I'm doing well. How are you doing spiritually? Oh, terrific. Really? Because your friend told me they haven't seen you in any type of gathering in like three or four months. Oh, yeah, well, you know, I got a lot of stuff going on. I'm doing okay, right? I'm doing good. I'm doing terrific. Or whatever other application you can think of that maybe may help make sense of why these people are so stupid. Because sin is stupid, right? So, they're oblivious, totally oblivious to the, the brink of total collapse, the impending disaster and judgment from God upon them, because it's coming. And Amos is trying to get their attention. He's like, wake up, please wake up. Verse 7, Therefore, therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. The reference to the, no doubt, the Assyrian captivity in 722 B.C. Note it is 760 B.C. approximately that exiles the 722 Assyrian exile. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. There is a connection, I think it's pretty clear, at least in just an observation that I've made of the text between verse 7 and verse 1. Remember what's going on in verse 1? Verse 1, they're saying, hey, we are the first of the nations. We're number one. Now Amos comes in verse 7 and says, you guys love being number one, so you won't have any problem being first in line as you go into exile then. That's, that's what he says there. You guys are all about being first, being number one? No problem. You can be first in the line going into captivity. Why? Because God doesn't tolerate this type of self-indulgent, complacent, arrogant, prideful attitude that they've had. 
like I said, it's so easy, right? I think the temptation, the temptation's easy. The temptation is very apparent. The temptation is, remember 40 years earlier, Jehoaz prays. They've lived, in, they've lived under the, the rule of Damascus for 30 plus years. He prays. They really need God at that moment. And then God answers. And now they're in a period where they're just coasting. They don't need him so much. That's the temptation, I think, more than anything, to not need him so much. To trust in their own military might. Their, their own financial strength their own whatever it is, to get to the point where pride seems to be like just dripping from the the page in front of us. And yet, you know, if you've been here through this this series, that these people, they're, they're excellent at doing all the religious type things. Like these are the people, in my mind, that they are gathering on Sundays, right? They're the people that are gathering during small group. They're, they're, they're participating all the time. They're checking every single box you would want to check. And yet, it's just religious activity. It's not true worship. It's like they come, sing songs to God, raise their hand, but they're not singing to God. They're just singing to themselves. And that's the issue, because it's not worship. If it was true worship, there'd be justice, there'd be righteousness, and yet there's, there's no justice or righteousness going on in this society. It's just religious activity that's, that's taking place. And I, I can't help but wonder, I can't help but think, are we like them somehow, whether individually or like collectively as a group? Or we like them. Like I said, this, some of you, there, some of you are sitting here like, this is the most unpatriotic Fourth of July sermon I've ever heard. Like, I mean, but I'll tell you what, I see it, right? So many quote unquote Christians have this mentality because, you know, it was, we got guns and God, country music. And if you like guns and country music, that's, that's totally cool. But, it comes very much, I see it a lot in this southern culture. I do, okay? I haven't been in the south a long time, but I see it. It's, it's just this, this, this America, this God, guns, country music, and this beer type of thing, and it's just, man, we're, we're the best, we're awesome. And I'm thinking, I don't, this isn't our home. We are pilgrims, that's, that's what scripture would call us, sojourners, elect exiles. Those are Bible words when describing the saints of God. Pilgrims, sojourners, elect exiles. But some of us, I think, live as if this is our home. We don't live our lives for the kingdom of God. We, we live our lives as if, as if, we don't have dual citizenship. And, and you want to call me like, you know, whether you're listening online or you're here, and I love the United States, you know, most of you guys know I'm an army officer, but man, America's not my home. And I don't want us to, 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 to be like America first and like our second citizenship of heaven, that's like priority number two 
if it even makes top ten at all. Tell you what, yes, for, for some strange, peculiar reason, it is, it's amazing that we live in the peace and prosperity that this country affords. It, it is. I, I, I've read it, I think it was, I've read in, uh, I think, Spectacular Sins, uh, it says, it is a peculiar providence why our churches are not bombed with regularity in this country. Peculiar providence. For some strange reason. But many of us, we live our lives as if, like these people back in verse 1, that we are number one. We live at ease, right? No one can touch us because we're America. Not, not God anywhere in the, in the equation of that sentence or even thought. It's just, we're the best. And that's awesome. You know, like that, our military could fail. Like that, our technology could fail. Like, none of us think of the possibility that a year from now, there could be men who run our country who speak a very different language than us. We don't think about that. We don't think about a year from now, there could be an imposed curfew for all of us English speakers like myself. We don't think of the possibility that on the flagpole, there's one right there, that in every building or church or whatever, there could be a different flag on that. I don't think most of us do. We feel totally secure. We feel totally at ease. Because after all, we are the first of the nation. No, that's that's them. That's not us. <laughs> and yet it is for a lot of us. We don't depend upon God. We don't need God the, the way we ought to need God. And there's pride. And for many of us, we don't even realize the pride is there. And so I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what you share in common with the people in this story. I think I've shared in common uh, just about everything at one point or another in my life with the indictments that they've faced today through the first seven verses of chapter 6. I don't know whether it's an issue of pride, whether it's an issue of self-indulgence, whether it's an issue where you don't care about even helping other people. Like, as long as you accomplish your next objective, whatever. Whether it's gluttony, whether it's trusting on your own self. Maybe it's not a, a corporate nationalistic thing. Maybe it's indiv- individualistic. You don't trust the Lord like you ought to. You, yeah, you need Him. You depend on upon Him oftentimes when you're in a jam. But as long as you're clear and the skies are blue, you just say, Lord, you just sit over there and, you know, try not to get in my way too much. A lot of pride, a lot of arrogance I see. And it's, it's wrong. And the only thing that's more stupid than sin is when we have the opportunity to observe how these people lived and the errors that these people made and to not learn the lessons from the story. Amos is saying, guys, get your, get your act together. Stop it. Repent. Things with you and the Lord, I don't think they're as good as maybe you even think they are. Self-evaluate your life. Okay, maybe, okay, maybe I'm off. Amos calls them to, to really think, are things with me and the Lord, are they how they should be? The band's going to come up here, and I'm going to pray. And uh, as I pray, I'd ask you to contemplate how things are in your life. Because in a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. We're going to take communion.
We do it a little differently here at Lynchburg City Church. You don't have to be a member of, of Lynchburg City Church to take communion, but you do have to be a Christian. Communion is for Christians, um, for those who've placed their faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ, both as Lord and as Savior. So when you're ready, I'd ask you to come to the back and I'll serve you communion. But if you're not ready, then just sit here as long as you need. Okay, I don't want you thinking, oh, all my friends are getting up, so I need to get up too. You just sit here. If you need to sit here, if you need to work things out with the Lord, work things out with the Lord. Have a conversation with Him. Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 11 that we not take the Lord's Supper, that we not take communion in an unworthy manner. So if God's tugging on your heart right now, if something's going on with you and the Lord, and you feel that tug, that might be the Holy Spirit right now. So you sit here, the band's going to play, and when you're ready, when you're ready, you come. And you take God, we love you. You're a good God. I thank you for this, just this terrific story um, of a nation that is totally screwed up. <laughs> um, because sometimes, uh, even as a church, we we just we we miss the mark. And so, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to honestly self-evaluate how things really are in our lives in relation to you. Maybe, maybe the last year's been good. Maybe the last month's been good. Maybe the last week hasn't been so good. Maybe there's things we need to repent of right now. I don't know. I pray that even right now you show me. I don't just want to, I don't want any of us just to hear a, okay, a rah, rah, chipper, good sermon, but we want to hear from you, God. So speak right now to us, Lord. Impress upon us what it is that you want us to truly see and examine. And grant us a heart of repentance. As Paul prays in 2 Timothy 2.25, Lord, I pray that you'd grant us a heart of repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. We don't want to be blind and ignorant living in a reality where we think everything's good and it's not. We need your help, Jesus. So help us. Amen.